0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning, and it's good to be here. It is, for a few people at our church, the most wonderful time of the year. It's the sheriff family vacation, which means that this pulpit is vacated for three weeks. And so... <laughs> I am privileged to be batting lead-off for two of my favorite preachers. Pastor Doug will be preaching next week, and Dave Strzeski, one of our elders, will be preaching the following. And so it's just a privilege to be here this morning. I get to do it so frequently and cherish, so infrequently, but I cherish it. So please, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be today, verses 16 and 17. It's funny when you... uh, When you don't preach every week, you can just cherry pick your favorite passages in Scripture. And that's kind of what I've done here. So when you find it, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. God's Word reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we thank you for this passage and for the book of Romans. I pray that it would be meaningful and helpful to us today. I pray that your spirit would reveal its meaning and its application in our hearts, God, and that we would glorify you. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Romans. It's such a great book. I don't know if you spent much time reading this particular epistle, but it is considered by many to be Paul's masterpiece. He wrote this and it is just full of biblical doctrine. It covers practically every imaginable question. If you ever wondered about any kind of doctrine in the Bible, there's a good chance that you will find yourself in Romans eventually. It is considered to be uh, one of his greatest works, and throughout history, it has always played, the whole book of Romans has always played a heavy part in pretty much every revival, biblical uh, revival that's that's really ever happened. Romans, it's always someone when when the church or when a country or when a group of people have strayed from the gospel, it always seems to be the book of Romans that brings them back. It's one of the most commentated on books in the Bible. In fact, I believe it's the most commentated on book of the Bible. And you see so many men throughout church history have had a particularly great and deep love for the book of Romans. John Calvin wrote about the book, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Frederick Godet describes Romans as the cathedral of the Christian faith, and then in this quote that I love, I love everything about this quote from William Tyndale. Listen to this. No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. Romans is a book packed with goodness for us. And I remember vividly, actually, being in high school and deciding to read Romans for the first time. I had heard so many good things. And I'm like, Romans, Romans, this is going to be awesome. And so I started reading it, and I remember I got to, like, chapter 11, and I remember telling my brother, "I don't, I don't get it. It just didn't make sense. I had read it, and it completely just boggled my mind. And perhaps some of you feel that way, maybe not just even about the book of Romans, but about the Bible in general. You read it, and sometimes you think, I don't get it. What is it talking about? And so it's my hope this morning, as William Tyndale stated, my hope is to spend some time chewing on the book of Romans with you so that it would become more pleasant and precious to you and I. Paul had never been to the church in Rome. He didn't found the church. He had never visited them. And so he was writing the letter for the whole purpose of telling them that he really wanted to come visit He liked them, he was grateful for them, he knew of the church that was there, he knew of their faithfulness, and so he'd simply wanted to come visit. He wasn't writing for the purpose of correcting any kind of error that they were teaching, there wasn't any kind of false doctrine or false living that was going on there. He simply wanted to go, and he says in the 15 verses leading up to the passage that we're reading today, he says that he wants to go and encourage them, and be encouraged by them. He would encourage them by preaching the gospel. They would encourage him by simply being a biblical church, and everyone would benefit from him. And so when we get to verse 16 and 17, Paul is, having given an introduction and introduced himself, he's giving his thesis statement, For the entire book, I don't know if you remember high school English writing these essays, we would always need a thesis statement, a one-sentence sort of summary of what we were going to try and argue for the remainder of the paper. And that's what Paul is giving here. He's got 16 chapters worth of letter that he's going to write, but in these two verses he summarizes his entire argument. This is his summary. And in it, Paul describes four qualities of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel is here, and Paul's going to describe four different qualities of the gospel so that his hearers and we would live by faith. That's what we're looking at. And so we're going to see four qualities. You can follow along with me. The first one is very simple. We see it right away. The first quality of the gospel is that the gospel repels shame. Shame. The gospel repels shame. We see that in verse 16 when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul felt no embarrassment. He felt no shame. He felt no need to hide the fact that he was going to be preaching the gospel. In fact, he had just told them, I want to come just so I can preach the gospel. During that time, it would have been easy for the church to feel a certain amount of shame about the gospel. The gospel, Christianity itself, was very new and highly misunderstood. There were many people who just didn't understand exactly what the Christians were proclaiming by the gospel, and it was generally looked down upon to be a Christian. Worse than that, many people were persecuted. Robert Haldane in writing about sort of this says the pagan by the pagans it that is christianity by the pagans it was branded atheism and by the jews it was abhorred as subverting the law and tending to licentiousness while both jews and gentiles united in denouncing the christians as disturbers of the public peace who in their pride and presumption separated themselves from the rest of mankind Besides, a crucified Savior was, to the one, a stumbling block, and to the other, foolishness. This was the general prevailing attitude of the people of the time towards Christians. As they looked down on them, they thought them foolish. They thought their beliefs wild and ridiculous. There were accusations of cannibalism uh, toward Christians by people who misunderstood the meaning of the Lord's Supper and talking about the body and the blood of Christ. It was a very strange time, and it would have been easy for some to feel a certain amount of embarrassment and shame about what they were preaching. Not the, uh, uh, certainly also because what they proclaimed was a crucified Savior. When we talk about crucifixion now, a lot of times we describe it in terms of its painfulness and how terrible of a way to die it was. But at the time, it was much more than that. It wasn't just that it was going to be a very painful death. It's that it was going to be a very shameful death. Death. they tried as best they could in crucifixion to embarrass you as much as possible to shame not just you but your entire family in the way that they killed them slaves were crucified and now here christians are proclaiming a crucified savior it would have it would have caused a certain amount of perhaps hesitation to the early church not to paul though paul is very specific he says i am not ashamed of the gospel i am willing to proclaim it everywhere and we know he did from the book of acts and we see the great cost that paul paid in continuing to proclaim the gospel if he were ashamed of it he never would have allowed himself to be persecuted the way he was the way he was he just would have stopped at one point And so Paul's point is that I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am willing to give up everything on behalf of the gospel. So should the church in Rome, and really, so should the church now. We should not be ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel in any way. It shouldn't cause us hesitation to talk to others about it. We shouldn't feel squeamish to bring up the gospel to those we know, and especially to those that we like best in the world. And yet it seems sometimes, maybe all the time, that those are the hardest people to talk about the gospel to, is it not? Those that you love the most, those that you care about more than anyone else, are the ones that it's so difficult to talk about the gospel with. Is it because of shame? Or embarrassment? It's amazing how easy it is now to talk about sort of trite things, don't you think? How how easy it is to have strong opinions and interesting arguments and debates with people over things that ultimately don't matter. I'm sure some of you in this room could have a very intelligent argument with someone else about when and how the NFL labor dispute will be solved and whether or not we will have football next season. I'm sure others of you have strong opinions about television shows that were renewed for the fall or whether or not the Harry Potter movies are better than Star Wars. I'm sure you guys can talk very intelligently about very meaningless things, ultimately. And not only are you intelligent about them, but you love to talk about them. You try and get into conversations, right? You hear someone, you're like, oh, I want to get in on that. The gospel should be at the tip of our lips constantly, on the tips of our tongues, The gospel should not be something that we are embarrassed of or ashamed to talk to others about. The gospel should be something that we love to explain, that we love to tell others about. And so if you feel that embarrassment, if you feel a certain amount of that shame, one, there's always a general rule. Anytime you're ever confronted with something that's wrong, something that's sinful, in general, it's always right to simply repent of that turn away from sin, turn toward God, ask God to change your heart. Those are all good responses. But Paul in his argument and these verses ultimately gives the reason why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. He tells us why there's no need to be ashamed. And that's the second quality of the gospel is we shouldn't be ashamed for because it is the power of God for salvation. It's a second quality. The gospel is the power of God on salvation. And we just see that in the middle of 16. It's the power of God to salvation. I love when the Bible makes my outline for me. It makes things much easier. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And I want you to notice what the, what this verse does not say. It does not say that the gospel is somehow some kind of conduit that gets us... To God's power. The gospel is not something that reveals power. The gospel is not something that gives us power to save ourselves. The gospel is itself powerful. The gospel is God's power to save. I don't know if you've ever been to the drag races before. This is something that I like to do with my family from time to time. And I think probably two years ago was the last time I went with my dad and my brother. And we were going, we were watching the stock cars. And these are impressive machines. 1,500 horsepower these cars have. 1,500 horsepower. They can go faster than 200 miles per hour. By comparison my 1996 Honda Accord has 130 horsepower and the steering wheel starts to shake if I go higher than 70, right? These are much faster and much better than my car. And so I, I, I won't forget sitting there, we're watching them just tear down the track. And all of a sudden I heard a noise. And even, even saying that I heard a noise probably isn't quite right. Really what happened is I felt a noise. This noise was so unbelievably loud that I can feel individual internal organs rattling inside of me. My teeth are chattering. There is loud, loud noise. I look over and I see that the funny cars are getting ready to race. These have, sock cars, 1,500 horsepower. Funny cars, 7,000 horsepower horsepower. They go up to 330 miles per hour. They go from zero to 100 in less than 0.8 seconds. They take off from the starting gate with the amount of force equal to five times the force of gravity. That's literally the exact same amount of force that the space shuttle exerts when it lifts off from the launch pad in Cape Canaveral. These are monsters. Monsters. And they look like it. It has eight exhausts, four on each side. Fire is spewing forth from them. It's like a dragon, right? And it is loud and big. And the difference between these funny cars and the stock cars is so immediately apparent. The stock cars did not belch fire. Everything about them screams power. The sound, the sound of a big engine, that is just the sound of power. Is it not? And these are as big as they come. So when we talk about the power of God, when we talk about this immense, immeasurable, unimaginable power, we can at least get a visual of maybe kind of the, the, the most powerful engine that men can make. Imagine the omnipotent power of God. The endless power depthless power of God. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is God's power. And it's not just any kind of power. It's not that it empowers us for a variety of things or, or or is any kind of general nebulous power. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It says that right in the middle of verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation. That is the gospel is what saves us from the consequence of sin. The gospel saves us, ultimately, from God's wrath. And we know that this is true because starting in the very next verse, after the, after the verses that we're looking at today, starting in verse 118 and continuing on through most of chapter 3, Paul spends about two chapters, three chapters, developing the doctrine of sin developing this idea that man is incredibly and unimaginably wicked. Look in verse 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. God is wrathing on people. Who is God wrathing on? Unrighteous people. Who is unrighteous? Well, let's turn over to uh, uh, Romans 3.10 to find out. No one is righteous. It says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. We are all unrighteous. Therefore, God's wrath will be and should be poured out on us. We deserve wrath and we need someone to save us and that is that is what the gospel has done god has come down the gospel is the power of god to save us there wasn't something in ourselves that we can do there wasn't something that we could work hard enough or try hard enough to do god simply revealed the gospel he revealed jesus christ and Him crucified, and that is the power of God in order to save us from sins. The question now that we have left is how does that salvation get applied to us? How is it that we can be saved? Unfortunately, these verses don't leave us in the dark about that. This is the third quality of the gospel. It's not just that the gospel repels shame or that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's that the gospel saves those who believe, those who have faith, At the end of verse 16, it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Don't be confused by that statement. It's not meaning that there are different modes of salvation, one for Jewish people and some for everyone else. It's not as if there are a limited number of spots in heaven and the Jews get priority registration and you just got to cross your fingers and hope that you still get in. This is simply talking about the chronological priority of the Jewish people the Jews had the privilege of having the Messiah come from their people and so he came to them first but ultimately he came to everyone everyone who is saved Jew or Greek Jew or Gentile everyone who is saved is saved through faith is saved through believing in Christ we're going to skip ahead to the verse of 17 to the end of 17 because Paul makes the same point here he says salvation is to everyone who believes for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith from faith for faith that's a difficult little phrase to translate Uh, the, the NASB says from faith to faith and both of them in fact have footnotes and so it's a little bit hard to exactly get how the translation from B but the idea is very simple and it's just faith 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 is the key ingredient for receiving salvation. There isn't some program, there isn't some way that you can be good enough so that God will look at you, you'll stand before God one day, he will not say, wow, pretty good, I'm impressed. That won't happen. If you want to be saved from the consequence of sin, you need to believe in Christ. And as it turns out, faith as a means of salvation is not some New Testament, newfangled fantasy that Paul just invented. It's always been the case. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. In the Old Testament, it was the same way. They weren't saved by following the law in the Old Testament. They were saved by faith. They were saved by believing. And so faith is this incredibly important concept. It's a very important word here because the gospel is the power of God. It saves us from the consequences of sin, from eternal damnation in hell, and the only way to get it applied to you is to have faith, is to believe. And so I want to make sure that if you think that you believe, that you know what what genuine faith looks like, and if you don't know if you believe, If you are not sure whether you're a Christian or, in fact, you know that you're not, I want there to be no doubt about the kind of faith that saves. So I'm going to give you three descriptions of faith now. What is faith? First, faith is based on knowledge of God's Word, of knowledge of God's Word. That means that faith is not a mere attitude of the mind. Faith involves content, there is something specific that we need to put our faith in. And I'll tell you right now, it's this. Faith in God, faith in Christ, comes through knowledge of God and knowledge of Christ in the Bible. There aren't extra books of the Bible. It's just the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. There aren't extra books. There aren't extra testaments. There is nothing else that be, that can be considered the Word of God. There's nothing else that saves. You can't have faith... You can't have right faith simply by wandering through the wilderness and having God reveal something to you. True faith is right here. The object of faith is revealed in Scripture. It's Jesus Christ as He's revealed in the Bible. That is the object of our faith. That is the content of our faith that we need to believe in. And so the obvious question is how well do you know God's Word? How well do you know the gospel as it's revealed in the word? How well do you know Christ as he's revealed in the Bible? Do you continue to know God's word better as your life goes on? Do you find that you understand scripture more? Do you find that you love to read scripture? Or do you find that your only interaction with God's word is Is on Sundays when someone tells you what it says, and you essentially are hoping that they're giving you the right answers. You need to know God's Word. You need to know the salvation that is described in it. You need to know the Christ that is revealed in the Bible. When's the last time you read the Gospels? When's the last time that you spent time learning about Christ's earthly ministry? about his perfections and about his death on the cross on your behalf. When was the last time you read the Gospels? All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is profitable for instruction and righteousness. But, if you found that you've strayed from God's word, if you found that you don't know it very well, you don't know where to start, you don't find it very interesting, if you found that you just don't know God's word well enough, Gospels is an excellent place to start. So faith is knowledge of God's word. Secondly, faith is a heart response to the gospel. And these are very important that they go together. It's not, we need content. We need an object of faith as revealed in the Bible, but we also need a right response to God. We need a heart response to the gospel so that it's not just that we give some kind of mental assent to a general principle, but that we, in our hearts, love God. That we find joy in Christ. That we delight to do God's will. And so again, that begs the question, how does this look in your life? Would you, how would you describe your heart response to God's word? How would you describe your heart's response to the gospel? Over the course of your life, well, well first of all, this won 't be perfected until this won't be perfected until heaven. you won't suddenly have this desire that never leaves to constantly obey until heaven. you won 't love to obey God perfectly, you won 't love Christ perfectly on earth. that will eventually come in heaven, but that 's something that should be that you should be growing in over the course of your Christian walk. And so if you examined even just the last year of your life, if you thought only about the last year, can you see how love for Christ has grown? Can you see that you delight in the gospel more, that you love to obey more? Can you see how you've grown in joy because of what Christ has done for you. I hope so. I hope that over time you slowly grow in this. It's so important that the gospel creates in us a right response in our heart. But though this is talking specifically about the gospel, I feel that I would be remiss if I didn't apply this to other areas in your life. The text is about the gospel, but this same heart response is completely necessary in other areas. Men, do you love over the last year Could you say that you love your wife more than you did a year ago? Do you demonstrate your love better? Are you more glad to serve your wife and your family at home than you were a year ago? Are you better at expressing your love? Kids, you don't get out of this either. Do you think you are better at expressing love for your parents and for your siblings Do you think you have grown in your ability and capacity to find joy in the midst of your family? Or do you find that you're just increasingly irritated with your parents and with your brothers and sisters? We should have right hearts before God. And the only answer to that, the only way that we can have right hearts before God is for God to give them to us. So pray, if you find your heart to be lacking, pray that god would change it we know that a right heart is a attribute of true faith and so if you truly believe if you truly believe the gospel then we know that god will change your heart we know that god will grant you a heart that rightly responds in love finally the last point in terms of what faith is it's is it's a commitment to christ It's a commitment. It's not that Christ is just a Savior, but he is my Savior. I've committed to him. And in a very serious way, to use another sports analogy, right now in the NFL, we have no team in Los Angeles and Orange County, so I'm free to root for whoever I want to. But if a team ever showed up, right, and and they're trying to work it out, I guess, but if a team ever showed up in Los Angeles, they would immediately get my loyalty because ultimately I'm not I'm not really loyal to anyone else. They all left. And so if someone showed up, my my loyalty immediately would change. This is not the way that our faithfulness to God is supposed to work. It's a commitment. It is not just a lifelong commitment, but it's an eternal commitment where Christ becomes my king who I will serve forever. Again, this is only something that God can do in your heart and so that is what faith is faith is knowledge and a right heart and a commitment and so do you have faith do you believe in Christ truly and has God's salvation been applied to you Finally, we're going to jump back into our fourth quality of the gospel, the last one that Paul mentions in the beginning of 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And here we're going to get to see some of the inner workings of the gospel. We're going to get to see sort of the cog that turns the wheel here because at this point, we simply know that the gospel saves, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But how does it do that? What is it about the gospel that causes us to have a right relationship with God. This is what verse 17 tells us. It's going to describe what's happening in salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This phrase, this is an interesting phrase and somewhat of a famous one because it is very much tied up in the story of Martin Luther's conversion and sanctification. Martin Luther is the great reformer. He started uh, the Protestant Reformation, which ultimately meant all kinds of good things for the Christian faith. Nailed up the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door and all that. But before that happened, this verse, Romans one seventeen was sort of the key, was a key turning point in his life because he did not understand what this phrase meant, the righteousness of God. And it started out as a source of incredible dread for him. Luther had been studying law, that was what he was decided to do, but he had an unbelievable fear of dying and going before God and being judged by God because he knew that, though he tried to be a good guy, that he wasn't good enough and even the good things that he did came out of a dark heart. He knew that to stand before God and to sort of present his life and say, is it good enough, he, he, knew, he knew that God would say no. So he was scared. He abandoned law school and went to a monastery, became a monk, and he threw himself into monkery, right? He, he loved to be a monk, and he was, with meticulous detail, would follow everything that monks were supposed to do. And he loved confession. He confessed all the time, and for long hours at a time, the most to other people's opinions, trivial sins because he was scared. He was scared of God's judgment. And the other monks would get somewhat frustrated with him. They'd be like, Martin, like this is you need to come back when you have really sinned, right? You wait till you got a whopper and then come because we are, we are tired of sitting here for hours listening to you just sort of ramble on and on. And he was scared and he was scared because of this verse. He was scared because of the righteousness of God. And this is what he writes. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Did you follow that? What Luther's concern was is when he thought of the righteousness of God, he said, well, what righteousness? That means that God... That means that God is a judge. That God is holy and perfect and he always punishes wrongdoing and it is good that he always punishes wrongdoing. That's what the righteousness of God meant to Luther. It's what this phrase meant. And so the gospel, a gospel that reveals God as a judge to condemn you for not being righteous enough was not good news. And it caused unbelievable fear in him and it wasn't until he figured out the true meaning of this text or more specifically the full meaning of this text that he was able to start the protestant reformation he wrote afterwards after he had figured it out the whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of god had filled me with hate now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love The passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. That's what this verse became, and it all has to do with his understanding. When he said the righteousness of God, it's not that the gospel does not reveal God as a perfect and righteous judge, but it it does. But there's a sort of dual kind of parallel meaning to this passage. It's not just the righteousness of God the gospel reveals. It's also the righteousness from God that the gospel reveals. Does so that make sense? It's a very small change, just a mix up of prepositions, of and from. And prepositions, uh, th- these are my favorite parts of speech. And I think it's really interesting. Do other people have favorite parts of speech? I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, but I love prepositions. There's so much meaning in prepositions. This of and from, here's the idea the gospel does reveal God, righteous judge, that's fine. But Jesus himself is God, the gospel reveals that. So Jesus himself is also perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. And what the gospel reveals is not just this perfect holiness of God, but the gospel reveals that in being saved, we receive by faith righteousness from God. Does that make sense? That in being saved, Jesus has given us his own righteousness so that we have received righteousness from God. We get as righteous as God is, as holy and perfect as God is, and specifically as Christ is, we receive that. The gospel reveals that we get righteousness from God. And that is how we are saved. That is the nuts and bolts of it. God didn't just say, ah, forgive him, it's fine. God is a righteous judge. He needs be just but now when he looks at us because of the gospel because of faith he sees not our own best effort but he sees the righteousness of Christ that we received through faith it's an amazing amazing thing and I think there can only be one response to that And and that's worship knowing that we receive Christ's righteousness should cause us to worship. We should, uh, I love this line with Luther at the end, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The knowledge that we receive the righteousness of Christ, that God is going to reward us as he would reward his own perfect son should be a teaching that is inexpressibly sweet and causes In us greater love. Does it do that for you? Do you hear what Christ did and you just can't practically help? It's like you want to scream. (laughs) Worship God because of what He's done for you. Let the realization of Christ's perfect righteousness applied to you be something that is inexpressibly sweet. I pray pray that this would cause you to worship God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. Thank you for the gospel and how it reveals your righteousness given to us. I pray that it would be something that is sweet to hear and to remember and would cause us to worship, Father. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.